Please follow along as I read aloud. This is God's word. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope, to hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees, uh, Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night... The Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Let's pray for the blessing of the Lord over the reading and hearing of his word. Lord God, we do come before you looking at this historic event, this courtroom drama that took place with Paul, and we ask you that today, in our day, in this moment, you would come to us, that you would enlighten our eyes, that you would enliven our hearts, that you would strengthen our minds, that you would give us resolve, that we might learn of Christ and we might live for him because of what your word teaches us today. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would please use this passage to dramatically alter the course of our understanding of how to live rightly before you. Lord, I ask that we would be humbled by this, that we would be glorifying Christ because of this, that our eyes would be open and that our hearts might be full. We acknowledge, Lord, we cannot do this on our own, and that as the speaker today, as the preacher, Lord, I am limited to only speaking to physical ears, but by your grace, the Holy Spirit speaks to ears that are able to hear. And so we ask that today he would be with us in a unique way, in a special way, in a transformative way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In order to understand the intricacies of what's going on in this text and taking place in this courtroom, it's important that we start out by taking a few moments to understand the key players that are here in the room. First, we have the Roman tribune. Now, over the past couple of weeks, we uh, saw in Acts that Paul was in the custody of this man, the tribune, an elevated Roman soldier. Now, although we don't know his name, we do actually get a pretty good sense of his character, we see that he was committed to peace. He was committed to his job. And when the Jews were attacking Paul in the middle of the court of the Gentiles on the outer courts of the temple, 
This Roman soldier is the one who rushed into the middle of the fray, and he is the one who broke things up. Now, he could have looked the other way. He could have just waited a little while until they kicked Paul into oblivion and made it so that he was no longer a threat to anyone, and then walked in and broken things up. However, this man, it says, ran to stop them. And he immediately stopped whatever was taking place, and he began looking for an explanation of why the city was on the verge of a riot. And then the tribune allowed Paul to address the Jews from the Roman fortress. Now again, to just kind of give a depiction of this, the Jews would not permit the Gentiles into the temple, of course, so the, the Romans had a bra- brilliant idea. They just built a really tall tower next to the temple so they could look down into it, and Paul was permitted to look down over the walls of the temple and to communicate to the very crowd that had just tried to kill him. And the Romans who had incarcerated Paul gave him the freedom to do that. Now, from my perspective, that is an amazing act of kindness from someone that they had just previously uh, suspected of being an insurrectionist. It displays to me that this tribune had a genuine fairness and that after all of the handling of this matter, the tribune still did not understand what was going on. He didn't get why the Jews were so angry. He He did not understand why Paul was such a threat to them. So what does he do? It says he gives it a night, he keeps Paul in jail overnight, and then the next morning he takes him into the Sanhedrin, the ones that that are in charge, and he walks Paul in so that he might get to the bottom of what's going on. We also need to understand who these Sanhedrin were. This was the governing body that ruled over all of the Jewish aspects of life. You see, the Romans were very happy to deal with all of the political things over Jerusalem and the Jews. But they really didn't want to be involved in policing the everyday activity of all of the Jewish customs and religious and ceremonial laws. They did not care what the Jews ate. If they had pork for breakfast or a slice of bacon, the Roman soldiers didn't care at all. So they had the Sanhedrin who would rule over all of the political operations of the temple and over the people. So the Sanhedrin kind of functioned like a government inside of a government. Think of it like a state government inside of our federal government. But just like our government, not everyone inside of the Sanhedrin were like-minded. Although they were in the same room, they certainly did not work together. There were two parties that were diametrically opposed to everything that the other said, in just about every meaningful way. The Pharisees on the one side and the Sadducees on the other. The Pharisees were committed to the authenticity of the Old Testament. They believed in the impossibly high standard of law-keeping. They believed in the miracles. They believed in angels. They believed in heaven. In short, they believed the supernatural working of God took place on earth and beyond. But the Sadducees, they were much more atheistic or at least agnostic in their perspective of the Bible and even of God himself. Although they would say God exists, they denied that he had any real practical involvement in the world. They denied the supernatural. They rejected the historicity of the miracles. They did not believe that Moses actually parted the Red Sea. They did not think that there were such things as angelic beings. They did not believe in heaven or hell. And they did not believe in God in any way that would align with the Old Testament. And we know from historic writings and records that one of the chief arguments that would divide these two parties was the question of, is there life after death? As you probably know quite well, 
there's a great deal of weight wrapped up in that question. If there is no afterlife, well, then there's no consequences. If there is no afterlife, there is no judgment. If there is no afterlife, there's no rewards for good or punishments for evil. If there is no afterlife, then this life is all that matters. And this life should then be all about garnering and enjoying power and prestige and play. It means that there is no higher authority than oneself. And Paul agrees with the Pharisees, like he says in this text, in some ways he is a Pharisee, and in this sense he certainly is a Pharisee, stating that it is important that we believe in the resurrection of the dead. It is important that we believe in what he calls here the hope, meaning the hope of life after death. That is what, why he states in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 16 through 19, saying that for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. You see, the Sanhedrin were divided over this and many other questions. We also need to know that there was a man who led these Sanhedrin whose name was Ananias. This was a man who was placed as the high priest over the Jews. He was not brought in by the Sanhedrin themselves. He was brought in by Felix, the governor. He was given this position by the Romans. There is actually a great deal written about this man. There's, there's a lot of high priests that take place over the history of Israel, and most of them we have some information about. This guy, we actually have an incredible amount of detail because everyone hated him. Everyone liked to write about how terrible he was. He was written about a great deal because of his brutality. Vincent's Word Studies describes him this way. It says, He was a violent, haughty, gluttonous, and rapacious tyrant. He reduced the inferior priests almost to starvation by defrauding them of their tithes and sent his creatures, or minions, to the threshing floors with bludgeons to seize tithes from the people by force. Now, I find it interesting that this commentary speaks about his minions because we see him utilize those very same minions in this text. Now, you could think of this man like a greedy Prince John in the Robin Hood stories. He's the kind of man who all he wanted was money. He was in this position because it served his financial desires. He had no real religious convictions. He was a man who knew the cost of everything and the value of nothing. And lastly, we need to remember a few things about Paul. Of course, we are all very familiar with Paul, the great missionary apostle, but we also need to set him in the context of where he is now. That will help us understand why he does some of the things that he does in these verses. Remember that Paul was very familiar with the Sanhedrin and very familiar with this very room. As he said back in chapter 22, verse 3, he had sat at the feet of Gamaliel as a disciple. He was trained by this man. He was being groomed to be the next of the great leaders and wise uh, Sanhedrin himself. Gamaliel was one of the most respected and brilliant members of the Sanhedrin for decades. Now, I'm not in the world of academia, thankfully. I am not a PhD. I am not a, a professor of any kind. But I have spent some time rubbing shoulders with people in that world, and I can tell you that when there is somebody who has received a PhD communicating with another person who has a PhD, there is a question that is inevitably going to be asked of each other. And that is the question 
under whom did you study? And that question is asking, basically, what philosophy do you adhere to? Because literally almost everybody studies under a person with whom they agree, and then they will continue to promulgate whatever they have learned from that professor. So they will ask the question, under whom did you study? Well, by saying that he had studied under Gamaliel, Paul was saying, I had the best of the best education. I have the highest of credentials. There is no one in this room who has a better education than I do. And the last time that Paul had been in this room, he was roughly 20, it was roughly 20 years earlier. And at that time, the very last time he had been in that courtroom, he was given a piece of paper, a document, that allowed him to go all the way to Damascus to arrest and imprison Christians. He had left from this place, and he had traveled to Damascus with the entire and set purpose of eliminating Christianity. Yet on the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus appeared to him, and the Lord Jesus transformed him, and the Lord Jesus blinded him, and the Lord Jesus sent him into Damascus to wait for three days until another man, also named Ananias, came and shared the gospel with him. Now it's interesting here that we find earlier in the book of Acts that when the Jewish rulers, the people of the Sanhedrin, discovered that Paul had rejected their teaching and had turned to Christianity, it was this very body that set out to kill him. Now, Paul is finally back in his old stomping grounds. Twenty years later, many things have changed. And now he is standing before the very same people who are still just as bloodthirsty and ruthless against Christianity as they were two decades earlier. And now he is experiencing exactly what Jesus told the disciples they would experience all the way back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. It is there that Jesus said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Conveniently, that's going to be our outline for the remainder of our sermon. First, we're going to see how Paul's actions were as innocent as a dove, and then we're going to see how he was as wise as a serpent. Let's begin with seeing how he was innocent as a dove. Before we do that, we first need to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be innocent? Well, most of the time that you find that word in the Bible is being used to describe somebody who is without guilt. When Jesus, however, used that word in these verses from Matthew chapter 10, he was not speaking about being guiltless, but he was speaking about being harmless about being weak and limited, about being one who is not aggressive or filled with venomous spite. So for our purposes today, what I actually want to do is use the exact same meaning that Jesus had, but also to use the other meaning of innocent, which is guiltless, and see how Paul actually fulfills both. First, let's see the gentle, harmless side of Paul in this situation. When Paul was set before the council, it says that he began speaking to them, saying, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And then it says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. Now here's an interesting question that I think we should ask and answer. Why did Ananias do this? Was there something that he said? Was there something in particular that set him off? Well, to be honest... It doesn't seem like that at all. At this point, Paul has basically said nothing. It seems like Ananias was just attempting to present a display of dominance so he could show Paul who is boss. Well, Paul immediately responded, as any of us might if someone commanded their minions to punch us in the face. 
Paul, likely speaking now through a split lip and a bloody mouth, said to Ananias, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Now, Paul was referencing the first few verses of Deuteronomy chapter 25. There we find stipulations about beating unconvicted criminals. And like we saw last week when Bob was preaching about the previous passage, the Romans had no problem doing this. In fact, the Romans used this as a way to investigate. They would just take somebody and beat them until they decided to confess to the crime. Now, of course, you're more likely to get a confession if you beat, beat it out of somebody But the Jews did not do that. That was a Gentile form of incarceration. It's not like the practice that the Jews were to have according to Deuteronomy 25. As was his character, however, Ananias did not care about the Jewish law. He disregarded it entirely and did whatever he wanted during his short-lived power. Now, by calling Ananias a whitewashed wall, Paul was referencing the passage that James read for us so well earlier from Ezekiel. In that passage, we see that God said there's going to be a wall that is going to be breaking down, and instead of fixing the wall, you're just going to paint over it to make it look nice. Now, the irony of this whole situation is that it's likely every single person in the room got that reference except for the man he was speaking to. Ananias probably had no idea what he was even saying. Almost everyone in that room was a religious scholar, but he was a politician, The imagery is very simple. There is a wall that needs to be repaired. As the chief priest, it's your job to do that. But instead of doing the work of bringing stability and strength, the wicked leaders are simply going to make it look nicer. And there was no value in their effort, and their leadership was actually a destructive force against the people that was going to result in God's wrath being poured out in judgment against them. And for this reason, the Lord said in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 16, when it falls You shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Well, let's ask the question. Was it wrong for Paul to say this to Ananias? Was it wrong for him to speak this way to that man? Was it wrong for him to declare that God was going to judge him? Well, let me just say, we don't know what tone Paul was using, but it does seem as though it was a relatively harsh tone because His opponents referred to what he did as reviling, which carries with it the sense of extreme anger. It's likely that Paul was red in the face and frustrated and letting everyone know it. Now, let me rephrase the question a little bit. Was was Paul wrong regarding what he said about the law? No, he wasn't. Of course not. The chief priest did break the old covenant commands. Was Paul wrong about the fact that God would judge Ananias? No, he was actually spot on, not only because Paul knew the answer to what happens with every sin, but also he was actually, in some sense, being prophetic because this man, Ananias, was so hated by his own people that in A.D. 66, well after he had lost this job of high priest, the Jews revolted, and the first major political target to experience their wrath was this man, Ananias. Now, there are conflicting accounts as to how he was killed, But what is clear is that whichever way it truly was, was brutal and disturbing. And what is most crazy to me about the man who led the charge in this assassination is that it was his very own son who killed him. So Paul was clearly correct in his estimation regarding Ananias. Yes, God would judge him. 
So was it wrong for Paul to speak this way to the high priest? Yes, it was. Yes, Paul was wrong. He admits it himself. When he was rebuked, he simply said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. In other words, it's not what Paul said that was wrong, it's who he said it to. It's the fact that he was speaking to one of the leaders that the Lord himself had placed in authority over him. Even though Ananias was a wicked, brutal, hypocritical joke of a high priest, he was still the high priest. Scripture is very clear about the way we are to honor those who are in authority over us. In order to illustrate this, let me provide for you two examples, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. Paul the Apostle had a Jewish name, which was Saul. He was actually named after the very first king of Israel, also named Saul. And when Saul was king of Israel, he wasted roughly 15 years of his entire reign as king, chasing down the man who would be the next king, David. Why was he doing that? Because he hated David. Because he was jealous of David. Because he knew that David was the greatest threat to his own legacy and kingdom. Even so, when David had the opportunity to kill Saul, not on one occasion, but on two, David refused to do so. Why? Because he recognized that God had crowned Saul as king, and that was God's job to take that crown away, not Saul's, not David's, rather. Similarly, the apostle Peter wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. He writes, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Notice that beyond the general command to honor everyone, Peter went out of his way to highlight the need to show honor to the emperor. Do you realize who the emperor was when he wrote these words? It was Nero, one of the worst rulers history has ever seen, both politically and morally. This man was horrendous. Beyond just being a terrible leader, and beyond just burning down his capital city of Rome and then blaming it on the Christians, Nero was also responsible for the greatest and most ruthless persecution the church had ever seen. The non-Christian Roman historian Tacitus was so disturbed by Nero's actions against the Christians, he writes about it this way. He said, "...mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished." or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero literally used them as playthings. Imagine if you were part of a church that had several members who were arrested and then put to death by Nero. Some of them he covered up in literal sheep's clothing, wrapped them up in the fur, the, the nice skins of these these sheep, and then threw them into the middle of the Colosseum and then released wild dogs to kill them. And all you know about your best friend in the church is that they were treated in this way. And then another friend of yours who sat on the other side of you in your favorite seat in the, in the church, that person is then arrested, and then they are taken by Nero into his garden. They are dipped in oil, and then they are dipped into some other flammable materials, and they are lit on fire to be used as a torch for his garden party. Now imagine the next day you receive a letter from Peter saying, honor the emperor. That would be difficult. Now I imagine that if you were to receive that, 
you would have a hard time responding without bitterness and without anger and without hatred and without complaining and without threats and without reviling and without all sorts of other sins. And I don't have to guess that that's true. I know that that is the natural human response, and I know that because I see it in myself when far lesser evils are committed against the church by our own government authorities every day. You do not have to like your rulers. In fact, most of the time, we are Americans, we're not going to. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to promote them. You do not have to vote for them. But it is your calling as a Christian to honor them. Now, I don't tell you my political opinions. I intentionally avoid doing that. And the main reason that I don't tell you what I believe politically is because I don't want to conflate my perspectives about government with what the Bible says about salvation. I don't want you to think that to be a Christian, you have to agree with me politically. So I try to keep that pretty quiet. However, if you know me at all, you know I have pretty strong opinions. And I have pretty strong opinions about just about everything. My parents are visiting with us today. They know that this is very true. I have strong opinions about politics, and there's very few people that get to hear those opinions, but the person who, who hears them more than anyone else is my wife. Now, there are occasions when I speak about political leaders and authorities where my wife, who is the far more godly of the two of us, has said to me, you're not speaking of these people in a loving and godly way. And by God's grace, the Lord has softened me over the past several years, and I have changed the way that I speak about people, and instead of saying things that are aggressively angry, now what I typically say about them is this, I would not want to have to answer for that on the last day. And the reason I think that has been helpful to my heart, and that perspective has been good for my heart, is because it removes me from the position as judge, and reminds me that I am not in charge, the Lord is their judge. And what chance does Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Barack Obama or good old George W. have on the last day? Zero percent chance, just like me and just like you. We have zero percent chance of standing in the judgment apart from Jesus Christ. I am not their judge, neither are you. But I am not their authority, and neither are you. But they are given authority over us. And we are told by God to honor governing authorities, even with those whom you disagree. So you might be thinking, well, how on earth am I supposed to see this? You're telling me that this is Paul being as harmless as a dove? Well, it seems like he just kind of called this guy out pretty harshly. Is that what it looks like to be harmless as a dove? Well, no, not exactly. I'm not trying to point out to you the fact that he got it right all the time, because he certainly didn't. He blew it. But the point is that when he realized he had said something he shouldn't have, he immediately made it right. He acknowledged his faults, and he even rebuked himself publicly with Scripture. And that is not the main aspect of innocence that we need to see, however. The main thing that I want you to see is what he said before he was even punched in the face. Look at verse 1 again. It says, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now that, to me, is an absolutely earth-shattering statement. That is a mind-boggling statement. I, I think you know what it means to have a good conscience. At least you know by its opposite. 
Because all of us at some point in time have done something that has caused our conscience to be dirty. And all of us have had to live at some point in time with a dirty conscience. Having a dirty conscience is one of the most oppressive experiences that a human can endure. Consider Edgar Allan Poe's famous story, The Telltale Heart. In that story, there's a man who kills another man. He buries this man under the floorboards of his house. And later, when the police come to inspect the house, he invites them in and says, basically, in his own mind, there is no way anyone will ever find this body. There is no way they will ever discover what I have done. However, this man, this murderer, cannot stop hearing the beating of that dead man's heart. It's not a physical sound that's heard in the ears. It's a sound that he continues to hear, thumping and thumping and thumping in his mind. No matter how hard he plugs his ears, that rhythmic thumping sound fills him with dread. The reason that that story resonates with its readers is that it is such a clear representation of what it is like when our conscience tortures us. When you lay on your bed at night and you just remember all of the horrendous things that you have done. When you are convinced of all of the wickedness of your own heart. And we cannot help but hear the reverberating accusations of guilt, not from someone out there, but from right in here and here. You are in that situation. When you are in that situation, you you don't need to be surrounded by wolves in a courtroom like Paul. Your conscience decries your guilt in a much more powerful and pointed way. Paul says he had a good conscience. So let me ask you, how is it possible that this man could say he had a good conscience? This man, who used to be sitting in the very same seat where they were now sitting. This man, who was historically an opponent of the cross. This man, who held the coats of the very people who stoned Stephen to death. This man, who breathed out murderous threats against the apostles and the church. This man, who imprisoned Christian, Christians. This man, who is a self-described chief of sinners. How could a man like that have a good conscience? Well, the answer, of course, is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9 teaches us that the old covenant practices of worship, the ones that were being practiced by the Sanhedrin, those are not capable of cleaning our conscience. It says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. You have a dirty conscience? Sure, go through all those old old covenant rituals. They will not purify your conscience. Now, personally, I doubt that any of you have had a dirty conscience. You've had a guilty conscience. You've had trouble sleeping. You feel that weight, and then you go out and slaughter an animal like the old covenant tells you to. I don't think that you're trying to go through the Old Testament-style sacrifices in order to feel better. But there are a million other ways that people try to eliminate a guilty conscience. So many, it's not even worth me cataloging today. But the Bible teaches that there is only one true way for a sinner to have a pure conscience. Hebrews 9.14 explains it this way. It says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you want to have a clean conscience? Do you want to have a pure conscience? Do you want to have a good conscience like Paul says he had until that day? There is one place to receive it, and that is through the forgiving and purifying work of Jesus Christ. Paul could stand before these men with a good and clean conscience because Paul's conscience had been purified through the blood of Christ. He had become a new creation. The old was gone. Behold, the new had come. 
He was a new man from the last time he had been in that room. Therefore, there was no condemnation for Paul because he was in Christ Jesus. Can you say that about yourself? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? If so, you can stand boldly knowing that your sins are dealt with. You bear it no more. They were nailed to the cross. It's over. It is finished. But what happens when you fall back into sin? What happens after you have been saved and you now continue to fall short of the glory of God? What happens then? Well, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is very clear. That if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 8 explains it like this. It says, the Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you till the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we see, Paul was as innocent as a dove, both in the sense of being harmless by confessing and acknowledging his sin, and in the sense of being guiltless, standing there in good conscience before them. Which brings us now to our second point, that Paul was as wise as a serpent. There is perhaps no greater example in the entire Bible of the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend than this. Let's walk through the text together one more time and see how Paul brilliantly plays the Pharisees and the Sadducees against one another. Verse 6, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. Now you can immediately see that Paul is attempting to identify with one faction over the other. And now, now, just to be clear, it's well worth noting that it is very unlikely that any of the people in the room have knowledge of what Paul's teachings were. It's unlikely any of them had read the books of Galatians or Romans or 1 Corinthians. It's very unlikely that they were familiar with his philosophy. If you remember two weeks ago, these were not the same Jews who started the riot. Those who started the riot were all Jews who had traveled from Ephesus to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. In fact, it's likely that none of the people in this room were even present in the court of the Gentiles that day. They were not there when the riot occurred, and they were hearing about Paul's situation for the very first time. Now, as far as we can tell, the people in this room don't even understand that Paul is connected to the large and, in, and uh, growing faction of Christians that existed in Jerusalem. So already, Paul is now ingratiating himself to some people in the room by saying, I am a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. And in doing so, he is alienating all of the others. Now then, in an act of absolute brilliance, Paul kicks the hornet's nest. He says, it's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now we should be asking the question, is this true? Is this really why he is on trial? Well, yes, it is. In particular, it was in regards to Jesus being raised from the dead. And how do we know this? It goes all the way back to the fact that the very people who caused the riot in the outer court of the temple were offended by him proclaiming Jesus in Ephesus. And when they had followed him all the way to Jerusalem, they continued with that bitter argument ever since. So in this room, Paul acknowledges, yes, the reason these people are angry is because of my belief in the resurrection and in the hope of life after death. But he doesn't get so specific as to explain that it's about Jesus' resurrection that he was being persecuted. This led the entire room to devolve into absolute chaos. Verse 7, And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. 
For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Now, maybe you don't see this as a crazy situation, but I certainly do. I believe it certainly is. The Pharisees, the Pharisees, the quintessential notorious bad guys from almost all of the stories of Jesus, these guys defend Paul and even begin to question, well, maybe Paul actually heard the angels speak to him. Maybe the message that he has gotten, which they know nothing about. Maybe the heavens opened up and he actually heard something divinely inspired, given to him like the old covenant prophets. Maybe he does know the truth. They're actually putting Paul's knowledge above their own, all because they identify with him. They were willing to accept that Paul might have been enlightened by an angelic being, even though he never claimed that he was, even though he didn't tell them anything about his theology, because they were not defending his theology, they were defending him because they viewed it as defending themselves. It is quintessential tribalism. Verse 10, And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Now here we see that the Lord gave him wisdom to be protected by the wolves that were in that room. The Lord provided Paul with a Roman soldier who had the wisdom to get him out and into a place of safety. But we have not yet looked at the most important part of the text. Look in your own copy of the Scriptures. Look to verse 11. Notice what it says. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Jesus had not abandoned Paul. When you go through trials, Jesus has not abandoned you. The Lord stands by his people. His final promise before ascending to the Father is, I will be with you to the end of the age. Regardless of how powerful the enemies are that are called, you are called to stand against, or no matter how difficult the circumstances that you are called to stand under, you do not stand alone. The Lord stands by you. We have gone through a season over the last several months of particularly acute pain in the lives of several of our members. And as those members have gone through difficult times, I have found myself on pretty much every occasion praying with them and reminding them, do you remember when Paul was alone? When everyone had deserted him in 2 Timothy chapter 4, when he was isolated and he said, everyone has left me, but the Lord stood by me. And I have told them, in this hospital bed, the Lord stands by you. And even though no one else is here and you feel alone, the Lord stands by you. And again, in this passage, we see that when Paul was left alone, when he is in handcuffs, when he is in Roman custody, the Lord continues to stand by him. And do not overlook the little word in the middle of this verse, the word as, Jesus told Paul that in the very same way that he testified in Jerusalem, Paul would have to do the very same thing in Rome. Perhaps Paul did not realize how identical these things would be, that he would be in custody, he would be in chains, under duress, in front of God-haters. It would be the same way in Rome. 
It would be the same way in Rome. It would be in the power of God, with the leading of the Spirit, in the presence of Jesus. It would be in the same way in Rome. That is why Jesus could say, take courage. That's why he could look at this man, this man in flesh and blood like you and I, and say, take courage. There is nothing in Paul that would produce courage. What produces courage is the fact that Jesus was still going to be with him when he walked out of that room, when he made his way to Felix, when he makes his way to Agrippa, when he makes his way to Jerusalem, when he makes his way to stand before the emperor. He will still stand firmly and stand with strength, not because Paul was strong, but because Jesus was strong. That is why Jesus can say, take courage. That is why Paul would spend the next several years suffering as a prisoner. That is why Paul is able to continue in faith when it seems like everyone else just moved along with life. Because the Lord stood by him and the Lord stands by you. But as we close and turn our attention to the Lord's table, I want to turn your attention to another man who was called to suffer. The one who stood alone before the Sanhedrin and nobody defended him. The one who stood before Pilate and who also heard the words, I find no fault in him. Yet unlike Paul, Jesus was still sentenced to death, even after he was found guiltless. Today is the day we traditionally call Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus went into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The day that he was surrounded by celebrating crowds, acknowledging that he is the son of David, and saying, Hosanna, blessed be this man. It is the day that the crowd surrounded him rejoicing, even though just a few days later their sounds had turned into a proclamation of crucify him, crucify him. The reason that you and I can have a clear conscience, the reason that you and I can be guiltless, is because the Son of God died in our place, a life for a life. His body broken for us. His blood poured out for us. The wrath of God propitiated for us. Our sin debt paid for us. Our chains broken. Our souls set free. Our lives redeemed from the pit. Our enemy defeated. Our hope secured. Our cup runneth over. Our conscience sprinkled clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. In just a moment, we're going to partake of these elements together. The bread and the juice that you see here the Lord Jesus gave these to us the night that he was betrayed as a memorial in which he says to remember him. These elements are just bread and they are juice. There is nothing mystical or magical about them. But they are worshipful elements as they remind us of the death of Christ and its work for us. They are a reminder of the indelible grace that God has shown in the death of his son. And I would ask that today, if you have experienced salvation by grace through faith in Christ, that you would join us in remembering what Christ has done for us by partaking of the bread and of the juice. And if you are here with us today, friend, and you are not yet a Christian, I would ask that you refrain this morning and simply observe with your eyes what we are doing as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As soon as I begin to pray here in a moment, the music team is going to come forward, the ushers are going to come forward, and as we make our way through this next song, I would ask that you all remain seated while the ushers pass out the elements. We're going to remain seated, but we are going to sing together to the Lord about what he has done at the cross. And as we sing, we're going to be receiving the bread and the cup, and I would like to ask that you hold on to them for a few minutes. At the conclusion of the song, I'm going to come back, and we are going to partake together as I lead us through the scripture. So I'd ask that the ushers go ahead and come forward, music team go ahead and come forward, and let me pray for us. 
Our Father God, we do thank you that in Jesus Christ, our Savior, we have been given so much freedom, including freedom from the wicked deeds of our past and the consequences of them and the guilt of them and of the filthy conscience that comes with it. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that just like Paul, we who are sinners can look to Christ and be completely forgiven. And just like Paul, we can stand and have a good conscience. And Lord, I pray that we in this room would delight in Jesus Christ, your Son. And as we come now to the table, that we would remember and we would worship through considering the cross and what it has meant for us in saving and redeeming our souls. We pray, Lord, now that as we partake together, that you would give us the ability to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.